Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. I just think that there is so much uh, that you bring to the table, um, not only professionally as a media, you know, theory, studies, scholar, research, published author, journals, speak, you know, speaker, the whole gamut and talking about media and its effects and impact on cultures and how we see ourselves and how we see life. You have that that you bring to the table for us to learn from. And we're going to talk about that, um, especially given that we happen to have scheduled this part two with you um, shortly after the Hamas attack happened in Israel and Israel's retaliation that has resulted into I think the latest figures I saw were over 5,000 Palestinian civilians and 1,400 um, Israeli civilians with over 200 hostages is, um, um, hostages being held by Hamas. That's, that's as of where we are today in recording. Um, so we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> I'm also going to ask you some questions around your own personal development uh, because <clears throat> some people don't know that when I'm working with communicators, I am working with them as people, as human beings in their own personal development, which ends up showing up in their professional development. Um, and it shows up in their work through language, through actions and paradigms and narratives, et cetera. And so having you back uh, to kind of demonstrate for us and giving us context of the role of media on what we learn, how we see the world, and then how we see ourselves, especially as communicators and those who are putting language out there to create a certain container. So that relationship from the external to the internal and then from the internal to the external again, and the profound impact of what that cyclical relationship has uh, on us and our audiences. Um, so if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Massey, just reintroducing yourself and then I would love to, to start getting in on, especially media and research and its effects. Okay. Uh, I'm Kim Massey. I'm a radio, television, film professor at San Jose State University. And, uh, I've been there for 37 years. And, uh, so in all of that time, oh, I probably tell it, I know. <laughs> I've probably done everything once from production. I've written a book on radio production to um, theory, research, of course. And then uh, ultimately in, in, in the end of my career, uh, my focus is on media and culture, uh, which is I've been doing the whole time. And then I run the radio station, KSJS FM 90.5 on your FM dial in the Bay Area. So that's been my lifelong career. I've taken sabbaticals along the way and, and professional development leaves to work in the industry. And I've worked in the 
for advertising and I've been a media consultant for decades as well. So tried to get out of the institution often enough to where, you know, I was actually working professionally in, in the world so that I could come back and not, you know, and teach my students what I had learned from actually doing it instead of just talking about it. So that's been sort of my mm -hmm. career path. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, just last week, I made a post on LinkedIn where um, my girlfriend, Christy, recorded me working on some client materials and I was on the couch and I was rocking out to my headphones. And so I'm dancing, you know, while I'm sitting on the couch <laughs> and I'm working on client materials uh, on some client work and she captured it. And she's like, I think we sh you should post this. And I said, well, that is what I look like when I'm working on a uh, client work. Um, and when I posted it, people were like, what were you listening to? What was the song? And I said, well, I used to be a college radio DJ and I heard it together. <laughs> I put together a Spotify playlist that encompasses a lot of the, my favorite music that I used to play when I was at KSJS. That's the connection of my story to your background. And people were saying, well, we want a playlist made by Kim Clark. Like, we, you know, let us in on it. Uh, <laughs> and so I think I was listening to the Chemical Brothers, um, Block Rock and Beats in that particular moment. And somebody said, oh, I thought for sure it was the Prodigy. And I said, oh, I've got three songs from the Prodigy on that playlist. And one of them is Firestarter. And that's what we're doing here. That's what we do here at this uh, podcast. And that's what I do when I'm working with clients is that we're fire starters in a way that is productive and healing and inclusive. Um, before we get into the, your incredible depth of knowledge around media and culture and effects, I want people to get to know your background a little bit more. Uh, Cause I think how your background and what, you know, what your work has been, especially around diversity, equity, inclusion, I have seen it really evolve uh, and and show up more and more and how you show up. So there's, there's this information that you've gotten from your background that is showing up and who you are today and the conversations that you're having today and the work that you're leading personally and professionally. So let us get to know your background a little bit more. Okay. Uh, I want to say I saw that post of you rocking out and my first thought was classic Kim. Um, and I was <laughs> to see you so happy doing your work. I, I always appreciate that. And yesterday I, I was on a panel Star Trek and a, a young, a, an older man, I guess he would be in comparison to being a student walked up to me and said, you know, you were a TA for me, this before I became a professor, you were a TA for me back in 1986. And I went, wow. And he said, I couldn't believe it. I came to this panel and they introduced you. And I thought, is that her? Because he hadn't seen me since I was like 24. So that was kind of interesting. So yeah, a little bit background. Uh, and it has been, as, as we all do, we all have our, you know, maybe it was a mixtape back in the day, but we all have our playlists that, that provide the musical background of our lives. And we all... I hope, evolve and change over time. So I was born uh, a white uh, woman, and I was born in a little podunk town in Texas, about 29 miles from El Paso, right along the border. So the border was about two miles from my house. 
And um, so therefore, uh, there were the majority of my growing up uh, peers and people in town and the people that I dealt with at work, I mean, that, you know, at the grocery store or whatever, were in, in those days, we were called Hispanics. And now it's the Latin community. So I learned Spanish from the get-go. I'm fluent in Spanish because nobody talked English on the playground from the very start. So in class, it was English, but and with a little peppering of Spanish, but out in the playground, it was just Spanish. So you have to go along to get along and learn because these are going to be the people that you are friends with and the people that you're going to fall in, you know, puppy love with. And um, you're going to have arguments with and, you know, friendships are going to end and new ones are going to begin because I went to the same, I, I stayed in that little town from the time I started school to the day I graduated. So I had a very different viewpoint about, uh, because in terms of numbers, okay, in terms of culture, because I do know the difference, I was a minority in terms of numbers, right? But in terms of culture, I still wasn't because even though there weren't that many uh, white people or white students in my high school, for example, the privilege of the ones that were kind of gained um, privilege, even though we weren't. My my father was a small town newspaper man and, and by no stretch of anybody's imagination were we rich, we weren't even middle class, we were lower class. Um, very small house uh, that my dad couldn't afford to buy, so we paid $50 a month rent or whatever it was. And uh, one room in our house was dirt. And uh, we were very, uh, we didn't make a lot of money, but we were white, right? So the perception and the privilege that was placed on us, well, but you're white. So you, you get things or you can, people will listen to you or they'll pay more attention to you. And so I saw that growing up. Uh, my mom, it was she wasn't a helicopter mom, but she was a very involved mom and she would be on the school board or whatever. And if somebody else had a problem at school and didn't feel comfortable going and talking to administrators that were probably going to be white, they would call up my mom and my mom would go with them. So in that way, you're seeing the sort of white hero narrative playing out. Right. Uh, and I grew up in a very racist place, you know, along the border, white people were very racist and it didn't make sense to me. So I was always asking questions. I'd say, well, like, why are you saying these things about Mexican people? Because many of our, my peers were Mexican nationals that were coming across the border to get educated or whatever. And why would you say something disparaging about my friend, Sarah? I don't understand. It didn't make sense. It doesn't apply. I know her. I know her mom. I know her family. Everybody, everybody. Right. So why is that? And so I was taught that because there's difference, but we're different than them. And I said, but what about this person? And they say, well, she's been Americanized. What does that mean? So I was being raised in the best way that my parents knew how to raise me. Um, no harm, no foul. It was the 50s and 60s. But it didn't make sense to me. So I kept pushing back a little bit. I was not a sassy daughter or anything like that, very respectful, but I would just, this doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, I didn't have any alternative points of view coming at me from media, right? I mean, there were only three channels in those days, ABC, CBS, NBC, and all of the stories were like Ozzy and Harriet and, you know, they were all white stories. So I wasn't being given any sort of alternative reality to 
to contemplate. So I didn't know I was in a box because I was in the box and I wasn't getting any information otherwise. Okay. And, and even the, my friends who were uh, Latino or Mexican nationals or whatever, they weren't challenging the box either because it was like, that's the way it is. And so the culture back then was a much more, well, that's the way it is sort of mentality. So if you disagreed with your president, for example, President Nixon, for example, um, my father would tell me, you don't know. You don't know what, what he knows. He's the president and he knows stuff, right? So I was a little twirler in a Nixon now parade. My father took a picture and constantly throws that in my face all the time. Because later when I became a liberal and my father is, is a lifelong uh, Republican, we would have conversations about politics. He would disagree with the president and I would say, but, 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 but you don't know what Bill Clinton's thinking. He knows stuff you don't know. Like what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So it was a very interesting way to grow up. But at a very young age, it did not make sense to me. It seemed that it wasn't even political for me. It was more like meanness. It seemed mean to treat somebody like they were less than. I mean, I have the language to talk about it now. At the time, I didn't really have the language. And I thought my role was to stand up, stand up for and say, hey, no, you know, you can't treat this person this way. Or or if I went, uh, this happened to me more times than I can count. If I was in a restaurant and there was a, um, a black person sitting at, in a table by themselves or somebody of color, anybody of color, and they were getting kind of treated badly, meanly, or being completely ignored by the wait staff, I would, I felt like it was my job to stand up, to walk over there and say, no, this person was in front of me in line. Or why aren't you serving this person breakfast? They're with me. I had no other way to deal with the situation because I didn't know any other way. And that's, again, the hero narrative. It shouldn't be like that. Um, but that's, I was so young, I didn't know what else to do except to say, this isn't okay and I'm not going to stand for it. Like, well, if you're not going to feed that person breakfast, then I'm not going to eat breakfast, you know, whatever a, a young kid could do, right? And so that's sort of how it went. And then I went off to college and uh, I worked for a politician who was Lat Latin descent and uh, was a representative for El Paso, Texas. And, uh, and then I got to see how the Texas House of Representatives worked, which was predominantly white. And how those- Republican or Democrat? No, he was Democrat. He was Democrat, Bobby Democrat. Baez. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was interesting. And I got to see also, not Bobby, I, I'll say for the record, not Bobby, but I got to see other Latin representatives hire Latinos to be on their staff, but not in the secretarial positions because they wanted white people welcoming people into the office. And I would say, how can you do that? Like, this is, this is your chance to open the door. And, you know, it's like, I don't want, I want to make sure there's a white person that's side in, at the desk saying, oh, hi, let me take a message or let me go get the representative. And I thought that was interesting, right? So it just kept going as it is, because that's that's the way the world is. And now I'm old. I'm older. I'm an older woman. I'm in my 60s now. And I'm now, I have evolved to the point where I know that 
I show up to meetings and stuff and there's big swaths of time where I don't say anything because it isn't my place to say anything. They don't need to know what the opinion is, no matter how long I've been working at San Jose State, even though I'm a senior faculty level, right? Because I'm the person that's been there the longest. My my institutional knowledge or my experience, my decades of experience still doesn't matter whenever it comes to issues of uh, making sure that everyone gets a voice in the room. I don't, they don't need to hear my opinion anymore. They've heard enough from me, right? I will back up or I will ask questions or something like that. But it, uh, so much of it isn't my story to tell. And there is, it's inappropriate for me to tell somebody else's story when it's, when somebody is actually there to do that, right? And making sure that somebody is actually there to do that. And so, and so that's where it is, you know? I mean, um, when I was told, well, you can be friends with Latinos and black people and Asian people and whatever, but you can't date them. Or, you know, there was always these sort of hurdles and barriers. And I would say, well, I don't understand. I don't understand. And uh, but ultimately you become an adult and then you get to do whatever you want. And your parents can just roll their eyes or they can just be disappointed. Or in the case of mine, I'm happy to say they can change. They can evolve and they and they ask tough questions like what about what about that? And then I'm able to come back and say that is because that's the way you were raised. And that is because that's the world that you live in. But that world is never going to change if you don't change. So. Um, that's been, at some point you just have to say, everybody's got, you know, live and let live. And when I go home, I'm called the, you know, the egghead and the liberal and you're living out there in California with all those people, you know, you know, and I just I kind of go, yeah, yeah, I am, you know, uh, but, but they still love me and I still love them. And, and we still have conversation, difficult conversations, even though my parents are now in their nineties. I, we still have the difficult conversations because I think it's important to practice, if nothing else, having difficult conversations. Yeah, we're not very skilled at that. We don't have, and especially in the workplace, we do not have great role models on how to have these conversations. And, and for the most part, they were intentionally left out of the workplace prior to 2020. And then when people started coming back to work after shelter in place, et cetera, then there was this, this expression, there was this need, there was this energy of wanting to talk about it, wanting, wanting to learn about it. And we did not have, that's where a lot of my work coming out of 2020 was, was focused on helping people build the skills just to foster the, the container and the trust, the environment to allow people to make mistakes to be genuine in their curiosity, to learn how to apologize, how to call in, you know, as one of the options when microaggressions or harassment occurs. And so there's, there's a lot of, well, calling in and harassment. No, that, that, that you need to escalate that. But if a microaggression occurs, especially unintentional, um, you know, we have tools now. And so we're learning and some of us have more practice than others. You have a lot more practice than most folks, but you've also entered yourself into situations where you'll hear something or you'll see something said or somebody will come come at you with a comment of like, why did you say that? Mm -hmm. Because somebody else is uncomfortable and you are mm -hmm. allowing that space to have the conversation and you're holding that mutual respect. I've seen it. 
you know, you, you're holding the respect within these conversations where this is something I teach my clients all the time is we, we, we must find ways within our dialogues, within our communications to keep each other's human dignity intact. There is always a line where safety is concerned, whether it's emotional, mental, or physical safety, we have to get out of a situation. There's always that right. line. And that line can often be crossed by the person or people that we're, we're interacting with. And we need to know what that boundary is to where we just stop and we take care of ourselves and make sure that we're in a safe situation. But otherwise, yeah. there, are, there is some room for conversation that some of us don't um, take advantage of. Yeah, I think uh, the the place that I almost always start, uh, inadvertently, by the way, but I try to always start with the idea that there's more there's more than one way of looking at something, and nobody in the room should be getting 100% of what they want. Nobody in the room should be getting 100% of what they want. And anybody who thinks they deserve 100%, let's start there, because that is privilege. That is privilege. And the and the part that you are negotiating, I don't want to even say sacrificing because that's the problem. Well, I didn't get exactly what I wanted, but I only got 80 percent. So I gave up in quotes. Right. I gave up 20 percent to to negotiate, collaborate, cooperate. And I'm like, you're not giving up anything. You're investing. You're investing. So everybody needs to invest in providing space and time, a lot of time. Um, I'm currently in a, in a group where uh, culturally uh, a couple of the members of the group, they're not chatty, Kathy, like me. I mean, they, they, they're not just, they're not the same as me. They need time to stop and think and, you know, quiet for a few minutes to, and so I, I said, Okay, you know, I finish speaking and I say, and I'm I'm just going to sit here and take as much time as you need. You don't have to say anything at all, or you can, or whatever. Like I, because I feel like whoever's the more dominant personality in the room, right, is putting pressure on another person by saying, "Well, what do you have to say about that?" You know what I mean? And so you have to learn that there's different communication styles, there's different cultural communication styles because I'm a senior faculty member and maybe they feel like, "Well, they're a junior faculty member or, you know, there's a whole lot going on." So I try to make everybody understand that we are all none of us should be getting everything we want because we want there to be a collective good that comes out of this. That's where I usually start. And that's mostly to get the white people in the room to back off and give up the ghost of believing that they deserve something. And, and if they're not getting exactly what they think, not the group thinks, right, that they think they deserve, then that somehow they've been wronged. Okay, that's where I start. And then the second place I go after that is when you make a mistake, not if, but when. When you make a mistake, mm -hmm. you have to make it right. Apologies, sure, but apologies don't go very far if you keep making the mistake, right? You have to do three things. You have to apologize. You have to tell the person who was wronged. You don't need to understand why. That's the other thing. Is they're like, why do they need why do they need different pronouns? You don't need to understand that. You don't need to understand that. What you need to understand is that's a necessity. And it doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't take away from your pronoun to use a different pronoun. So stop 
putting that in your I deserve this pile. I said, it's really easy for somebody whose pronouns are the standard to stand back and say, well, adding any pronouns, what is that about? Well, yeah, because you're represented, right? So they need to understand, stop, apologize, but then make it right by the other person. You don't say, well, I apologize, and if they don't like it, well, I'm done. You go to that person and you say, what can I do? Because I made a mistake, and I'm really sorry. And along with my apology, I would like to do something more. And that is, how, how can I make it right by you? From your perspective, what would need to happen to make us, get us back on track? Knowing that I made a mistake, knowing that I apologize, but that I made it right from your perspective. And just doing that goes so far. Because when that person tells you, here's what I need you to do to make it right by me, they're also teaching you about the mistake. So you further understand why it was a mistake. Not that they need to explain themselves. I don't mean that. I'm not even saying you ask for an explanation like, well, why was that offensive to you? No, no, no. You don't need to understand why. What you need to know is don't do it again and make it right by the other person. And the best way to not do it again is to understand it to the best of your ability and keep trying to learn, right? So that's what that to me is. And I, and I use the depth model, by the by, because I think it's a really nice, neutrally not charged way of saying, all right, let me look at what let me look at what I'm doing here or let me look at what I've done here or I did because I've used the debt model when I didn't do anything wrong. I've used the debt model when I do things wrong, right? So it isn't just a tool to patch it up. It's a tool to understand a really nice basic kind of way of approaching something that's neutral in a highly charged situation uh, so that you are actually taking the time to process. Because that's and the that's work. What, you know, people, we don't, yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's something that I don't talk enough about is you can actually use the depth model on your own personal interpersonal communications. Now it was designed for organizations on helping them position themselves on social messaging and DEI communications from a place of authenticity, you know, in a way that, they can actually produce meaningful change. Something, you know, they should only be talking about things like they, they can actually change, fix, influence, um, reduce harm, you know, those kinds of things on an external basis. Internally, that's a different story. And that's for another podcast. But absolutely, I think I do mention it um, somewhere around people managers where I talk mm -hmm. about that you can use it as a manager tool but not only a manager of team, but a self-manager. <laughs> it it's a framework that you can do it. I guess in my world, the, the personal isn't that separate from the professional, right? Because I'm going in to a classroom full of 80 people, and I'm, I'm saying to them, now everything that's coming out of my mouth is coming out of a, a, an older, white, privileged point of view, Okay, but I'm doing the work and I I have guest lecturers in and I have them reading things that were not written by white women or whomever or whoever I am. Right. I'm doing that that kind of work. But the people that I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm just saying the people that are going to be implementing these the depth model in their 
communication as a corporation. Who do you think is doing that? It's people in a in a meeting. It's human beings in a meeting making decisions that that are good for the company, but it's still human beings in a meeting making those decisions, and they have to be able to have those conversations in those meetings. And why wouldn't you apply depth model personally um, if you're going to be applying it to your company? I mean, I I just feel like. Um, I just don't want people to say, well, that doesn't affect me because I disagree or, you know, that's just, that's just the corporate line. Right. But the corporate line is people, right. It's the people making the rules. It's the people making the policies. It's the people uh, making the work environment that's either effective and fair or not. And it's the people being affected by all of those uh, choices. So and it all comes down to, you know, you can be the CEO if you want to or whatever, but it all comes down to human beings doing uh, work, inclusive work with other human beings so that everybody gets to, everybody gets to be thought, thought about, that everybody gets a say and everybody gets to contribute a point of view and that is the best situation you can ever have because then you don't miss anything. You don't miss, well, we didn't see that that was going to cause us to lose all these employees or somebody was going to steal our employees away to an, a company that is doing that or whatever. It it um, it gives you that opportunity to connect with other people and move us in a direction that I think deep down we really all want to go, right? We all want to go to a more yeah. equal, fair, peaceful future and we're not we have history to look at we're not going to get there if if it's an elitism situation forever i mean i mean the french revolution sustainable plan yeah absolutely not i think deep down they know it yeah well that's the desperation that we're seeing And, and to when you were talking about you know the area that you were raised in where numerically being white was numerically in the minority, but the power was still within the numerical minority because of the social context and construct. And so when people use data, including myself, when I say the demographic shifts have already happened and are going to continue to happen with the United States, you know, people, what we have to keep in mind is that context of even if white folks are becoming more of a numerical minority. It doesn't mean that the ideology and the constructs of power right. are or going the to shift right along with that. That is correct. And, and, you know, look at apartheid, you know, very small right. number of the population were dominating the major, vast majority of the population. But also, I mean, I mean, we don't have to look at apartheid. We can look at America. We can yeah. look at America where you have a vast majority of people who aren't in control of space and money and systems and a very small minority of people are are way over influencing all of that. A very small number of people and they're very specific kinds of people that are bigger influences on all of that than the majority of people that are going to be affected by it. So you don't even have to look outside the country. Right, right. And and we have listeners from all over the world as well. So please make it real for you in the region that you're that you're in. 
uh, and from. Um, so when you're using the depth model, Dr. Massey, mm -hmm. is one part where, so I'll just go over like the depth model is the secret sauce in the book that Janet Stovall and I co-authored called The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Shit, to which Dr. Massey is a contributor. She has an article within the book. And so the depth model is an acronym. D is deliberate. E is educated. P is purposeful. T is tailored. And H is habitual. So out of, out of the D-E-P-T-H, are any one of those giving you a harder time when you apply it? That's an excellent question, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody who met me could possibly say that I'm not deliberate. I'm all about education. I'm a professor, for goodness sake. And pur uh, pur purposeful? Yeah, absolutely. I'm purposeful and passionate. When you read my student evaluations, that's what they say. Boy, is she into her topic. She is very passionate and purposeful about what she's doing. And it's infectious, right? But I think the, the, the category or the, the step that is the most difficult for me is the tailored one. And the way that you define it is, you know, when you're tailoring a message, uh, am I the one who should be like, do I have a right to be communicating this message? And like sort of to whom am I about to communicate that message? That for me has been the most difficult because there is pretty much no way I'm going to enter a room of non-white people. I don't, I don't care what they're doing of, of any, any profession from anywhere, anytime. And I'm not going to come in and tell them what, I think of them or what I think of their story or what their story is. That's never going to happen for me ever again. Now I have written books and I've edited books, more importantly edited books at a time when I had to really push my, my um, editor to get diverse voices because I said, I have no right to talk about this stuff. I want bell hooks, for example, before she was super famous, she was, always wonderful but before she was super famous i put one of her her essays in a, a an edited book of mine for media neglected voices because in my view it isn't just what you're hearing from media and what that's doing to us it's what you're not hearing from media that you should be hearing from media because media should be including everybody's voice and whenever i had that uh the publisher pushed back and said you know why doesn't she capitalize her name and you know, she uses colorful language, they called it, right? Because she says, damn, or whatever she said. I mean, today, by today's standards, forget about it. But, and I said, it doesn't matter. And you're not changing it. They wanted to change, like, like clean up the language and I guess capitalize her name. And I said, no. And I had a very good editor named Holly Allen. And I went to Holly, another white woman, but another white woman doing good work, I feel. And I said, Holly, I'm not doing it. And here's why. And you have no right to do that. And she went, I will make this happen. I will keep that essay in the book and they will not change a word. And I went, and I know she put her reputation on the line to make all that happen. And who knew if the book was going to sell, right? It was connected to a textbook. I thought, whatever. And the next thing I knew, Holly called me and said, we're running a second edition. We're running a third edition because Chicano Studies started using the book. African-American Studies were using the book. Women's Studies started using the book. Uh, because it had essays fr written by the people for the people 
to whom these things were affecting the most. I mean, it, I would argue that it affects all of us. It diminishes all of us when somebody's voice is missing. It, it, it diminishes white people too, but they just don't realize it, right? Or maybe they do, but my conversations tend to be with people who not necessarily, and whenever I show them, hey, this is affecting all of us. This is all of our futures. You don't need to be the majority and the most powerful. It doesn't have to be like that, right? So um, I would say that is the most difficult one for me because whenever I start talking about it with other white people, that's one of the questions that pops up. Like, well, why are you doing this? Like, this isn't even your problem. Like you're a heterosexual, white, cisgendered woman. Like those words never show up, but that's what I am. And why would you do this? I mean, and I, and I said, because it, we're all supposed to be doing this, right? And you and I talked in the last podcast about how if the civil rights movement didn't have also white people saying this is not right, then it may not have happened. If the LGBTQ plus movement did not also have non-LGBTQ plus people, it may not, it would have taken longer for sure, but it may not have happened as, as nicely as it did or whatever. So we're all supposed to be wanting fairness and equality. And so I have to really watch and make sure I'm not speaking for somebody else, especially when there's somebody else available to do that. And if there's not, my job is to make sure there is if I'm on the panel or I'm putting together something, right? And secondly, acknowledging that I'm not the person to who's best to talk about these things, right? When there's not somebody in the situation I find myself in to do that and acknowledging like, okay, look, I'm just telling you, I know I'm a cisgendered white woman of privilege, but here's a viewpoint that you're not thinking about here who, who isn't in the room. And here's some references for you to go to so you can hear the viewpoint coming from those actual um, groups. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, so we started off with your personal story and we set the context that who we are and our upbringing, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it paints a picture and gives us a mindset and a paradigm of what we, how do we understand the world. And then you demonstrated how that is showing up for you professionally and what you're doing just in interactions and in conversations with people. I want to touch base before I let you go, given, you know, this time period, as I mentioned in our open of when we're recording this, um, so there's a, there's a lot of concern around the language around Israel and Hamas, the impact of the Israeli and Palestinian people as, a re, as, as it relates um, to, as, you know, being directly impacted, uh, obviously, where people, innocent people who are living their lives, sitting in their homes, are dying as a result of of these decisions made by these governments and these military uh, entities. And it has reverberated throughout the world. Um, so I've been doing a lot of navigating uh, with clients for their organizations, primarily on internal communications, uh, language, events, how do we support 
all those kinds of things. One of the things that comes up constantly is really ensuring that we are gut checking the, our sources, that we stay in a fact mode um, and make sure that we are watching out and, and not reiterating any dehumanizing language. And so can you talk about that relationship of media representation, good guys, bad guys, and stereotypes, especially around cultures, languages, faiths that the dominant majority, particularly in the United States and in Western uh, Europe as well, have less understanding or exposure to in a positive light. Um, and so if you can help us kind of understand that those stereotypes, the narratives, and how they're playing out right now that we need to guide ourselves and being more consciously aware to, to ensure that we're not reaffirming or you know, continuing and supporting ideologies that we may not actually personally uh, believe in. And or know any, or know anything about, right? Right. Yes. Um, that's a very good question, and it's so complicated that you know my answer as an American white cisgendered woman of privilege can't really cover it all in just a few sentences. But I will tell you um, my personal experience about what's going on in the media right now. First of all, the whole. Uh, stereotyping of uh, Arabs and Muslims and Jewish people have been going on forever in media. I mean, all the way down to Disney. So you're watching as a child cartoons, Disney cartoons, uh, and people can Google this, but Aladdin, the, the Disney cartoon Aladdin, had different songs with different... Um, lyrics that were much more inflammatory and stereotyping, if not just downright racist, that they changed mm -hmm. before it was released, but it was still racist. So, but again, when you're a kid and you're just watching something, you don't have the, the capacity to understand that there's politics involved or in a long a long uh, history of racism, systemic racism. It's really difficult to teach that to, to kids who are watching a Disney movie, right? I mean, I tried whenever I was yep. raising my daughter and she was watching a Disney movie and I kept saying not all Disney princesses have to be white and you don't have to marry a handsome prince. And it, you may be, when you get older, you may be interested in another princess or, you know, I mean, it was difficult because you're fighting these stereotypes at all levels. So I just want to say that it isn't just now. It's like all of the stuff that's been going on for decades and decades and decades, ever since before the World War II, everybody kind of puts the, the stake in the sand at, well, in World War II, this happened. No, no, no. I mean, how do you think that happened? Because of all the stuff that came before World War II and the, and the idea, ideologies and stuff that were privileged and the ones that were not, right? So saying all of that, I have to tell you, the propaganda game that's going on right now is impressive. It's impressive. I will watch something that comes across my feed and think, oh, my gosh, that's horrible that the, that the Palestinians did that. Well, no, they didn't do that. Hamas did that. I have, I have friends that live in Israel that are Palestinian, and they live there peacefully. So it isn't just – it's a stereotype to say – they're all like that, right? Or, or one side has a moral 
um, uh, a moral compass that's better than the others, or you know, whatever. What is happening is horrific. The Hamas attacks were terrible. The retaliation also terrible. Who's right and who's wrong? It's it's. We're going to decide by all these different countries are going to throw their hats and and hitch the wagons and be um, affiliated and pick a side, right? But it's very, very complicated. And I watch something come across my feed from the other side going, oh, my gosh, you know, that sounds believable as well. So the propaganda machines, they've learned how to get to us. They know how to do it. And they are totally doing it. Uh, just the October 17th bombing of the hospital, stream media totally got that wrong. Everybody, the networks, New York Times, and you have to be very, very careful. During, I mean, you, sh you should be careful all the time. Let me say that for the record. But you really need to be careful when thousands and thousands of lives are at stake. And you think the numbers that you're quoting today are going to be all in and all it? It's going to get worse and worse until we're all desensitized. And it's like, yeah, the Middle East, they're always having problems. And really associating those numbers with human beings and human lives and the future of the children watching their parents be killed or having to be raised by strangers or whatever is going to happen. Rebuilding of cities, all of it. Um, so dehumanizing is the easiest and fastest way to get somebody to believe like, um, it's just numbers and you can't help it. Humanizing it is what the propaganda machines are all doing right now. They're showing you photographs of things that never happened, videos of things that happened a long time ago in a different war. They don't care. They're just going out there to get information to try to convince you. Um, so it is difficult to say just stay with the facts because where do you find those facts? Well, I don't know. The New York Times is a pretty big newspaper. It's been around forever. You would think you would be getting facts from them, but even they still make mistakes, right? So I believe one of the problems is, and you can't solve it, is that it's unregulated. It's an unregulated situation. In the United States, we have freedom of press. It's in our Constitution. So you can't really censor it, right? Because that would be censoring free speech. Um, but if you're a doctor in this in, in this country, uh, you have to take a board certified exam and stay up to date. And if you don't follow the rules, they can take your license to practice away. If you're a lawyer, you can be disbarred. But if you're a journalist and you fake something or you get it wrong or whatever, and you don't make it right. OK, wow, bummer. I guess you'll just have to put a correction on page 10 that says, oh, we said it was this, but what it really was was that. And that's supposed to be good enough, right? So what I urge people to do is don't go to one source and get out of your comfort zone. If you, in this, in this example, if you're pro-Israel, you need to be still reading something or watching YouTube videos or something from a a respected, from their point of view, uh, organization. It could be a video organization. It could be a newspaper. And everybody's translating everything in English, so America has no use there, right? But you should be listening to as many sources as you have time to listen to, and don't just go to one. Because if you go to one, it's like going to a party full of 200 people. There was a fight in the back room. 
there was something going on in the kitchen and they were learning a new recipe and there was the people out in the pool. If you only go out to the people at the pool and say, how was the party? And they were going to be like, great. We were out here swimming. And, there were, you, and then you'd be like, well, what about the recipes and what about the fight in the other room? What? You can't just get one point of view to understand the full situation. You have got to do your due diligence and get out of your, like I watch, I watch news reports from networks that I don't agree with at all, but I still do it. I still do it. And uh, I'm constantly showing other people how that works. And I'll, since we talked about my, my family earlier, I've gone and, and showed my dad, this is your Facebook page and th this is mine. Same news story, same exact thing that happened today. And look what yours is saying about it and look what mine is saying about it. And I always take screen captures of my dad's Facebook page for my students too. This is what my dad's looking at and this is what I'm looking at. And I don't even know what y'all are looking at, you know? And so the students will bring me screenshots of theirs which look different than mine, et cetera, et cetera. It just depends on what you're into. So I say talk to as many people as you can, all different kinds of people. Talk to somebody who's actually from there, if you can. And if you don't know anybody who's from there, you should, right? I'm not saying it's like, this is my one Iranian friend. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> right, this right. is my one friend from yeah. Israel. This is my one friend from Palestine. I, you can't do that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you should be talking to people who or tuning in at least to people who have experience, life experience of what is going on over there. I don't have life experience of what's going on over there. I've never been in a war zone. I've never had to run, several of my friends have had to spend days, hours, days in bunkers. When they come out, we call them and we all talk. Um, and I've never had to be in a bunker. So I would really urge people to when you're saying facts, check out facts from multiple perspectives, even if it's just to solidify your own position, even if it's like, well, I don't I don't disagree with that, but you should at least know what that is. I just don't Great think, you know, know exactly what really is going on there. Right. Yeah. And well, it takes a lot of effort. war. Right. Right. It's like, well, there's going to be a war someplace. They've always done, you know, well, if we're going to be throwing some weapons in and being allies, don't you think we should at least understand like why it's always been like that? For him. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My, one of my biggest just, concerns is the narrative, the media narratives uh, that are leading to apathy or certain kinds of empathy. Well, like what I recently saw, you may be familiar with him, Yale professor um, who's written a lot, lot of books, uh, William James Jennings. And I recently got to see him speak in, at Vanderbilt. And he talked about towards the end of his talk, his lecture, which he was talking about the, the word and the action of ownership and possession. And he went back in historical context and the beginnings of, of the United States and how it started in this sense of ownership and possession. At the end of the lecture, he talked about, uh, whose story are you in? Whose story are you a part of? And that has stuck with me. That has mm -hmm. stuck with me. Like, you know, it's just like, okay, wh who I critical thinking 
is what we teach in our courses at San Jose State in our department in radio, television, film, theater. You and I both teach these courses. It has guided our lives around sharpening these critical thinking skills. And they're absolutely necessary given the narratives that are out there. You said the propaganda machine and, um, and, and, you know, and, and what qualifies as a fact, you know, with the fog of war, it's like, you don't really know what's actually happening. And there are people that are available on LinkedIn that are freely and openly sharing their stories, professional stories, personal stories, family stories. And if you're going through this level of trauma and you're still willing to educate, we owe them our attention our gratitude, our support. We need to hire them. We need to support them in all of the ways. We need to listen. We need to pay attention and let them lead. And so, you know, going and finding those sources, whether it's, you know, these news organizations, as Dr. Massey is talking about, and also people with the lived experiences, which you can easily find on LinkedIn. And for those of us who don't have that direct impact, like you, like me, um, it's it's we have a responsibility because we're still a part of it, right? As long as we are U.S. citizens, and um, and and there's so much documentation of what's happening, which I have I haven't seen at the level of precedence uh, and availability uh, due to social media uh, uh, related to other uh, events. You know, it's funny magnitude. because. The Vietnam War was known as the, the, you know, the first war to be brought into your living room, right? Because the wars prior to that, you just heard whatever you were told from the government in through newspaper articles and whatever, but you didn't actually see it, right? And so when I was a kid, we all had POW bracelets that they handed out, and you would watch the TV every night to see if your PO prisoner of war, number, you know, 56293 or whatever, got off the the uh, planes. So you were seeing POWs get off airplanes and limping or being missing limbs. You were seeing, I'm sure, very carefully chosen footage coming from the front. Uh, but then you also had people like Edward R. Murrow who was on the front in, in radio and then ultimately on television bringing you reports from a trusted source, right? So. All of a sudden, you were seeing it, and you were. You know, we, we, since then, we've seen the, like the bombs being dropped, like a video game on things. And uh, this is pretty unprecedented, but it's following the trend of everybody's got a phone. Everybody can, you know. We we were seeing the music festival where those people were being kidnapped because you know, we had video of the the chaos. Uh, and some of the some of the hostages being taken, right? So yeah, but it, there's so much. It's very traumatizing to watch it all. True, but it's very difficult to sift through it. And that's why I think you need to keep, you know, diversifying your looking at things from different viewpoints and different sources, so that you get a better picture of how to think about about it, but also what the people making the choices are thinking about it. They're looking at the same stuff. You don't think that our president has somebody or a team of God knows how many people sifting through 
maybe the CIA, I don't know who's doing it, but somebody's watching social media constantly and saying, well, this is what the public mind is. This, this one is really being circulated and people are really clicking on it. So that one's important for us to think about, right? Because the public mind is thinking about it. So they're watching, you know, the same stuff. President number 45 is constantly commenting on things that he sees uh, in the media. And so that's what's going on in his head and what he's communicating about. So I feel like um, just really getting outside your comfort zone and don't only consume things that agree with your point of view. The part about being American, at least, that's the most wonderful is that we we can have alternative points of view. Sometimes they're really difficult. Like if you disagree with what your government's doing, oh, you're anti-American. Oh, you're not a patriot. Oh, you know, all of that. But that's kind of what we were based on. That's what our whole constitution is about. That's why we have freedom of press, freedom of speech, so that alternate voices or voices that disagree we can, can disagree and can be without going to prison or being killed or whatever, right? So mm -hmm. if you're not doing that, if you're not then you're not really keep democracy as, as they say is not a noun. It's a verb, right? If you're not, if you're not doing that kind of work to honor and to consume the freedom of press, freedom of speech, part of our constitution, then it's not being exercised. And whenever you do make a choice to vote or something, you won't be fully informed to make a, a good decision, right? That's the whole purpose of having that, that freedom is so that you can vote or that you can um, do your part and your part as a citizen is supposed to be participating in democracy, right? As communicators with this background and how we ingest and where we're getting our sources and stuff, it's that leveling up and really recognizing Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one -on -one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.